Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 16th day of March, 2008. I'd like to remind all my listeners that all of the documentation backing up all of the statements made in today's podcast can be gleaned from my website, CorbettReport.com. Please go there, and under the episode 37 documentation list, you will find links to all of the documents, news articles, and video resources cited in today's episode. And now, without further ado, it's time for the real news. Today's first story comes from the New York Times... March 9th, 2008, veto of bill on CIA tactics affirms Bush's legacy. President Bush on Saturday further cemented his legacy of fighting for strong executive powers, using his veto to shut down a congressional effort to limit the Central Intelligence Agency's latitude to subject terrorism suspects to harsh interrogation techniques. Mr. Bush vetoed a bill that would have explicitly prohibited the agency from using interrogation methods like waterboarding, a technique in which restrained prisoners are threatened with drowning and that has been the subject of intense criticism at home and abroad. Many such techniques are prohibited by the military and law enforcement agencies. Mr. Bush's veto, the ninth of his presidency but the eighth in the past ten months with Democrats in control of Congress, underscored his determination to preserve many of the executive prerogatives his administration has claimed in the name of fighting terrorism and to enshrine them into law. Today's second story comes from GovTech.com, March 12, 2008. Governor Perry awards $689,000 to Texas Child ID Program. Texas Governor Rick Perry last Friday awarded more than $689,000 to the Sheriff's Association of Texas for the distribution of child identification kits to all incoming kindergarten students in Texas public schools. These ID kits will allow parents and guardians to record their children's physical characteristics and fingerprints on identification cards that can be filed at home and quickly given to authorities in the event that their child goes missing. This grant is awarded under the federal Safe and Drug-Free Schools and Communities Act and distributed by the Governor's Criminal Justice Division. Texans must take every precaution, even prepare for worst-case scenarios to keep their children safe, said Governor Perry. Whether a child is lost or abducted, these child ID cards will save valuable time in the search and rescue process and help reunite families whose situation could have been much worse without the cards. 
Our final real news story today comes from BBC News, 12th of March, 2008. Germany plans cemetery pyramid. It sounds like an absurd idea. The plan is to build a massive pyramid filled with human remains on a windswept field near the city of Dessau, eastern Germany. But the organizers of the project are adamant that this is not a PR stunt. There were pyramids in ancient Egypt, so why not in modern-day Germany, they argue. We're doing this because the world wants it, said Jens Thiel, one of the initiators of the project. The new Great Pyramid would be a very efficient cemetery. It could have a huge capacity. A 150-meter-high pyramid could contain 5 million stones. It would be the size of six football fields, and millions of people could be buried there. Welcome to episode 37 of the Corbett Report. Globalization is not your friend. Quote, No one ever gave me directions like this on a golf course before. Aim at either Microsoft or IBM. I was standing on the first tee at the KGA Golf Club in downtown Bangalore in southern India when my playing partner pointed at two shiny glass and steel buildings off in the distance just behind the first green. The Goldman Sachs building wasn't done yet. Otherwise, he could have pointed that out as well and made it a threesome. HP and Texas Instruments had their offices on the back nine along the tenth hole. That wasn't all. The tea markers were from Epson, the printer company, and one of our caddies was wearing a hat from 3M. Outside, some of the traffic signs were also sponsored by Texas Instruments, and the Pizza Hut billboard on the way over showed a steaming pizza under the headline, Gigabytes of Taste. No, this definitely wasn't Kansas. It didn't even seem like India. Was this the new world, the old world, or the next world? End quote. What you've just been listening to is an excerpt from The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman, the acclaimed New York Times Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. And I read that passage because I think it best exemplifies the gee whiz, ain't it a wacky and wonderful globalized world we live in mentality which permeates a lot of the discussion on globalization in the media. And that is to say, both sides of the controlled false left-right paradigm, all the way from Fox News on the right to the New York Times on the left and everything in between. And the false left-right paradigm serves, as always, to limit the debate. It's presented as a choice between globalization being a good thing because it helps the companies earn more profit, and globalization being a good thing because it helps the people earn more money. The idea that globalization could be a bad thing is always dismissed as a crazy, loony, lunatic, left-wing, fringe idea. I'm here today to tell you that, as always, the false left-right paradigm is a complete fraud that is being perpetrated on us in order to limit dissent. As always, we have to step outside the boundaries of the way that the discourse has been limited for us in order to see the reality of the situation. To start our analysis today, I'd like to listen to a clip from the Alex Jones Show from March 30th, 2007. In this clip, Alex Jones outlines for us the process by which globalization works. Let's listen to this clip. Here's how it works. 
They come into a nation, a Western nation, to get a funding mechanism and a military enforcement arm like England, Germany, France, the U.S. They come in and they lobby. We're going to have a great new society. We're going to take care of everybody. We're going to have welfare and build man up. We go, great. We're going to vote for big government and uh, pay a lot of taxes to do this because it sounds wonderful and we, we want to share. They do dull some of that out for a while. Some good things happen, some bad things happen. The point is now it's created the trough. Then the global corporations come in. They're lobbying to take over the government the whole time to get most of that uh, money that's being paid in taxes given to them in investments, which they then take and use to buy off and pay off and blow out third world economies. They then, over the last 50 years, get control of the third world as a kind of camouflage neo-imperialism. They then mass that wealth, use it to totally buy off the Western governments. They then uh, uh, basically uh, drive up uh, the... Uh, debt of those nations in debt now owed to those very private banking institutions and governments that were already taken over in many cases hundreds of years ago. See, I said this is simple. It's not. And they then take all of that uh, wealth that they now have offshore where they never have to pay tax, but then they manipulate our government to actually raise taxes and, and toll roads and all these other ways of getting fees to, to then conduit more and more to themselves. And in the final phase, they come in and pay off the government to have the government actually write laws to cede government power into these multinational corporations, many of which are bigger than some of the largest nations in their GDP. And then they hire private intelligence agencies, private mercenary armies like the Bureaus with the Diamonds and this, and so you have this world government run by these untouchable elites whose wealth is offshore and then they basically just play nation states off against each other in globalization and economic warfare to have a domino effect to take over the next and they end up truly being world rulers through the financial system. Uh, that's a, a, a pretty succinct uh, uh, description of, of... Now, to be sure, what Alex Jones said there was more than a mouthful. And if you're like me, it might take three or four listens to that incredible two-minute clip to really decode what is being said. But once you've done that, the important thing to realize is that this is not just some theory. It's all been backed up by what insiders have been able to tell us about the way the international financial system has been structured. This goes back to the last remaining remnants of the Bretton Woods monetary structure for the international order after World War II, which, for instance, pegged the U.S. dollar to a gold standard, a standard that was, of course, dropped by the wayside in the 1970s so that future successive administrations would have free reign to print as much money as they want. And, of course, as my listeners will know, the government doesn't actually print the money. They go cap-in-hand to private bankers who control the Federal Reserve, which prints the money. Or, more accurately, creates money on computer screens out of nothing. But a couple of the bodies that were set up to help administer the new international financial order in the wake of World War II under the Bretton Woods monetary system was the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. These are essentially international monetary institutions, again, of course, controlled at the top by private bankers, which lends money out to countries, supposedly to facilitate development of those countries by financing major infrastructural projects, which could not be done without key international financial backing. Of course, what has been long apparent is that these bodies are not interested in the development of the third world, 
but rather the enslavement of the third world. And this comes not from some conspiracy nutter, but from Joe Stiglitz, the former chief economist of the World Bank. Let's turn to a report from the always entertaining and usually enlightening Greg Pallast from his website, gregpallast.com. And this was a report he filed on October 10th, 2001, which is headlined, The Globalizer Who Came In From The Cold. And his article reads in part, quote, The World Bank's former chief economist's accusations are eye-popping, including how the IMF and U.S. Treasury fixed the Russian elections. It has condemned people to death, the former apparatchik told me. This was like a scene out of Le Carre. The brilliant old agent comes in from the cold, crosses to our side, and in hours of debriefing, empties his memory of horrors committed in the name of a political ideology he now realizes has gone rotten. And here before me was a far bigger catch than some used Cold War spy. Joseph Stiglitz was chief economist of the World Bank. To a great extent, the New World Economic Order was his theory come to life. In 1999, the World Bank fired Stiglitz. He was not allowed quiet retirement. U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, I'm told, demanded a public excommunication for Stiglitz having expressed his first mild dissent from globalization World Bank style. Each nation's economy is individually analyzed. Then, says Stiglitz, the bank hands every minister the exact same four-step program. Step one is privatization, which Stiglitz said could more accurately be called briberization. Rather than object to the sell-offs of state industries, he said national leaders, using the World Bank's demand to silence local critics, happily flogged their electricity and water companies. You could see their eyes widen at the prospect of 10% commissions paid to Swiss bank accounts for simply shaving a few billion off the sale price of national assets. After briberization, step two of the IMF World Bank one-size-fits-all rescue-your-economy plan is capital market liberalization. In theory, capital market deregulation allows investment capital to flow in and out. Unfortunately, as in Indonesia and Brazil, the money simply flowed out and out. Stiglitz calls this the hot money cycle. Cash comes in for speculation in real estate and currency, then flees at the first whiff of trouble. A nation's reserves can drain in days, hours, and when that happens, to seduce speculators into returning a nation's own capital funds... The IMF demands these nations raise interest rates to 30%, 50%, and 80%. The result was predictable, said Stiglitz, of the hot money tidal waves in Asia and Latin America. Higher interest rates demolished property values, savaged industrial production, and drained national treasuries. At this point, the IMF drags the gasping nation to step three, market-based pricing, a fancy term for raising prices on food, water, and cooking gas. This leads predictably, to step three and a half, what Stiglitz calls the IMF riot. The IMF riot is painfully predictable. When a nation is down and out, the IMF takes advantage and squeezes the last pound of blood out of them. They turn up the heat until, finally, the whole cauldron blows up, as when the IMF eliminated food and fuel subsidies for the poor in Indonesia in 1998. Indonesia exploded into riots, but there are other examples. The Bolivian riots over water price last year and the, this February. The riots in Ecuador over the rise in cooking gas prices imposed by the World Bank. You'd almost get the impression that the riot is written into the plan. And it is. What Stiglitz did not know is that 
While in the States, BBC and The Observer obtained several documents from inside the World Bank, stamped over with those pesky warnings, confidential, restricted, not to be disclosed. Let's get back to one. The Interim Country Assistance Strategy for Ecuador. In it, the bank several times states, with cold accuracy, that they expected their plans to spark social unrest, to use their bureaucratic term for a nation in flames. A pattern emerges. There are lots of losers in this system, but one clear winner. The Western banks and U.S. Treasury making the big bucks off this crazy new international capital churn. Stiglitz told me about his unhappy meeting early in his World Bank tenure with Ethiopia's new president in the nation's first democratic election. The World Bank and IMF had ordered Ethiopia to divert aid money to its reserve account at the U.S. Treasury, which pays a pitiful 4% return while the nation borrowed U.S. dollars at 12% to feed its population. The new president begged Stiglitz to let him use the aid money to rebuild the nation. But no, the loot went straight off to the U.S. Treasury's vault in Washington. End quote. Again, I would suggest you read that entire article, and if you're interested, you can also follow the links from my website to a BBC video of that report about Joseph Stiglitz, the former chief economist of the World Bank and a Nobel Prize winner in economics who came in from the cold, so to speak, to talk about the ways that the IMF and the World Bank knowingly instituted the IMF riot in country after country as they undermined the sovereignty of these nations by bribing the dictators in charge into handing over the assets of the country. This is an incredibly insidious way of gaining control over a nation. And the scariest thing, according to what we heard Alex Jones describe just earlier, is that this is now being used against us in the supposed first world or the developed world. Now, one thing to clear up at this juncture is that this is not a critique of capitalism, as certain members on the controlled left side of the fake left-right paradigm would have you believe. No, this is a critique of a certain form of capitalism known as corporate capitalism, An idea of what corporate capitalism looks like might have been garnered from that excerpt that we heard earlier in this podcast from Thomas Friedman's book, in which everything is branded by certain large companies, and one gets the impression that the large companies, in fact, own the world. Of course, multinational corporations are at the root of the problems of what's happening in the international financial scene right now, and this is most definitely different than the ideal of free market capitalism, in which there is true, free, unfettered access to the markets for all players involved. This is an important point, and one that I think is best made by Ron Paul. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Of all the elements of the uh, Bretton Woods system, perhaps the most enduring has been the World Bank and its associated institutions. Although highly regarded in some circles, the bank has been a significant failure in helping the residents of poor and developing nations. Like many bureaucracies, the World Bank has constantly attempted to reinvent itself and redefine its mission. Some critics have referred to this as mission creep. It is the reaction of self-interested bureaucrats who are intent on saving their jobs at all costs. The non-institutional elements of the Bretton Woods such as the gold-backed dollar standard, have gone by the wayside, but the World Bank and the IMF soldier on. What is most annoying about the World Bank are the criticisms alleging that the bank and its actions demonstrate the negative side of free market capitalism. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
The World Bank is not an organization devoted to capitalism or to the free market, but to state-run corporate capitalism. Established and managed by a multitude of national governments, the World Bank promotes managed trade by which politically connected individuals and corporations enrich themselves at the expense of the poor and the middle class. Western governments tax their citizens to fund the World Bank, lend this money to corrupt third world dictators who abscound with the funds and then demand repayment, which is extracted through taxation from the poor third world citizens, rather than from the government officials who are responsible for the embezzlement. It is in essence a global transfer of wealth from the poor to the rich. Taxpayers around the world are forced to subsidize the lavish lifestyle of third world dictators and highly paid World Bank bureaucrats who don't even have to pay income taxes. The World Bank has outlived its intended purpose. Capital markets are flush with money and well-developed enough to lend money not just to national governments but to local and regional development projects as at competitive market rates. In the aftermath of Mr. Wolfowitz's departure, much will be made of the question of his successor. When the, questioning in, when, while the, when the questioning instead should be directed toward the phasing out of the organization. And I yield back. Now, at a certain level, critique of the World Bank, the IMF, and other such international financial structures becomes a critique of what's known as neoliberalism, or the policy of colonialism taking place by the extension of financial power and corporate control around the world through unfettered access to foreign markets, also known as free trade globalization. Of course, there's a wealth of literature and also audio and video out there about this very topic, so I would suggest that you do some research into that aspect of it for yourself. And a couple of recommendations that I would have for that would include certain well-known documentaries like No Logo by Naomi Klein, and also various responses to the Thomas Friedman-esque, gee whiz, ain't globalism great hucksterism that's prominent in most of the media today, such as a speech given to the New America Foundation by Ha Jun Chang about his book Bad Samaritans, The Myth of Free Trade and the Secret History of Capitalism, which can be found on YouTube under the title Why the World Isn't Flat, another humorous reference to Thomas Friedman. Also, Greg Pallast has a chapter in his book, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, entitled Sell the Lexus, Burn the Olive Tree, another humorous reference to Thomas Friedman. And all of that critique is valuable, but I fear it misses the scope of what's really happening here. And to capture that, we must look at the deeper issue of what these types of international bodies represent. And that is an encroaching move towards regional and eventually global government or governance, which is most explicitly not democratic in any way, shape, or form, and will protect corporate interests over that of everyday citizens. An example of that would be the WTO, which many people fear and also critique without really realizing what it's doing. Of course, the WTO is one of the main organizations behind undermining national sovereignty, by making business disputes that cross international borders a uh, part of its jurisdiction under binding arbitration, which can actually undermine an, a nation's laws if they are found to interfere with corporate profits. Other insidious aspects of organizations like the WTO is the TRIPS Treaty, 
the agreement on trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights, which of course limits companies' ability to market, for example, cheap generic copies of patented AIDS drugs, which could save lives in Africa, because of course that would violate the company's intellectual property rights. But again, there's a lot of information out there about the WTO and some of the more insidious aspects of that organization. So in today's podcast, let's turn back to something which the Corbett Report has not talked about in a while, and that's the Security and Prosperity Partnership, which is currently seeking to undermine the national sovereignty of the U.S., Canada, and Mexico in order to bring them into a closer union, a North American union, if you will, in which corporate interests, again, reign supreme, and people do not have a say in any type of representative government. Now, at the last Leaders' Summit of the SPP, there was a sham press conference in which controlled members of the corporate media were allowed to ask scripted questions to the leaders about what they'd been discussing in the highly secretive SPP talks. Well, let's listen to the Right Honourable Prime Minister of Canada, Stephen Harper's response to what's really being decided at these SPP behind-closed-door meetings. As uh, you three leaders meet here, there are a growing number of people in each of your countries who have expressed concern about the Security and Prosperity Partnership. This is addressed to all three of you. Can you say today that this is not a prelude to a North American Union, similar to a European Union? Uh, are there plans to build some kind of superhighway connecting all three countries? And do you believe all of these theories about a possible erosion of national identity stem from a lack of transparency from this partnership? Well, let me begin. I, uh, and I guess I've read some things from my opposition in Canada. I'm not sure these are generally expressed concerns, but a couple of my opposition leaders have speculated on massive water diversions and uh, uh, superhighways to the continent, maybe interplanetary, I'm not sure as well. Um, uh, I even were reports of a former prime minister lurking in the hallways. Uh, I have yet to see him. Um, look, uh, we have an enormous uh, trading commercial relationship. It's important that the leaders of, uh, of that trading relationship get together, periodically have discussions, just as it's important at every level, ministerial level, official level, that they're getting together and talking and making sure they're working out problems. You know, uh, we had some business leaders in front of us today. One in particular said, you know, the rules for jelly beans. He manufactures jelly beans. The rules for jelly bean contents are different in Canada and the United States. They have to maintain two separate inventories. Is the sovereignty of Canada going to fall apart if we standardize the jelly bean? You know, I don't think so. Maybe Mr. Dion thinks so, but I don't think so. So, you know, there are th these are pragmatic practical discussions. In fact, it was my predecessor uh, in the Liberal Party who initiated them. And ultimately, of course, for the decisions, we're responsible to our respective populations through our democratic system. And as President Calderon mentioned, I have to listen to that practical input every single day in Parliament. I have to listen to the input from the opposition in Parliament, but of course I don't actually have to take it into account, because as we all know, the government doesn't really run anything, and the international financial oligarchs behind the scenes are pulling the strings, because as I just admitted, the leader of the supposed opposite of my party, the Liberals, 
actually started the process, although I'm happy to carry it on because I think this is great, or I was told to think that by the people behind the scenes who really want to undermine national sovereignty. I mean, oops, did I just admit that? Yes, as we can see from that response, there is no serious questioning from the media, as that was obviously a softball question that was framed in such a way as to make it very easy to deny that there's anything going on behind the scenes more insidious than the standardization of the jelly bean. Yes, that's exactly what the SPP is all about, and that's exactly why we have the President of the United States, the President of Mexico, and the Prime Minister of Canada involved in these talks. It's to listen to business leaders who are interested in standardizing the jelly bean. Go back to sleep, nothing to see here. Well, that's a load of bunkum, obviously, but let's go through the process of showing that that's a load of bunkum. First, let's turn to a report from uh, earlier in the process of the SPP and the encroaching North American Union from one of the only journalists who's actually been willing to look into the matter, and that's Lou Dobbs on CNN. So let's listen to his report, which helps frame the debate about the North American Union, what it really means, in a way that's more sensible than Mr. Harper's response. President Bush signed a formal agreement that will end the United States as we know it. And he took the step without approval from either the U.S. Congress or the people of the United States. Bill Tucker reports. The Security and Prosperity Partnership of North America sounds benign, hardly like a policy that critics call NAFTA on steroids. It's a deal that few have even heard of. It's being done again by very few people at the very top on behalf of the investment class, but the working class of people. Uh, political officials across our country from communities, uh, from cities and so forth, they don't know anything about this. Yet it was agreed to by Mexico's President Fox, Canada's Prime Minister Martin and President Bush in 2005. Administration officials counter their critics by saying everything about SPP is on the White House website. And they say the partnership is not a treaty, but more of an outline of priorities between the United States, Mexico and Canada. Still, some wonder why there haven't been public discussions about the goals being pursued. This SPP includes, for instance, a committee that is sitting down to harmonize our meat inspection and food safety. So how far away from a trade agreement can your dining room table and what you feed your kids be? Other parts of the agreement mention border security as an issue, which include all of North America. In fact, the name of the agreement is not security and prosperity of the United States, but of North America. When we elect officials, we expect them to act on our behalf. When we get involved in cooperative frameworks with other countries for joint regulation of fisheries or rail transportation or the skies, we're basically sharing our sovereignty with that government and outsourcing some of what we give our elected officials. As disturbing as some find SPP, there is legislation in the House introduced by Florida's Catherine Harris that closely resembles the goals of the partnership. Included in that bill is a section which calls for the securing of Mexico's southern border by the United States and Canada. Lou, that's not the border with the United States. That's the border they share with Belize and Guatemala. The idea that the White House would respond, that this is on their website, uh, this involves uh, intricate uh, uh, workings uh, amongst the Commerce Department of mm -hmm. this country the, and Canada and Mexico's, of course, 
uh, a regional prosperity and security program. Uh, this is absolute ignorance. And the fact that we are, uh, we, we reported this, we should point out, uh, when it was signed. But as we watch this thing progress, these working groups are continuing, they're intensifying. Uh, what, what in the world are these people thinking about? Well, they say, look, these are a declaration and an outline of our priorities. And when I called them today, Lou, they said that I was the first phone call they had received literally since the deal was first signed. So people are not paying attention, and they're letting them, in fact, get away with this. You know, I, I was asked the other day uh, about whether or not I really thought the American people had the stomach to stand up and stop this nonsense, this direction from a group of elites in absolute contravention of our law, of our Constitution, uh, every national value. And I hope, I pray that I'm right when I said yes. But this is, this is beyond belief. Now, what that report gets to are some of the actual key issues that are taking place right now under the SPP auspices, rather than the ridiculous jelly beans comments of Stephen Harper. Now, some of the issues raised there do go directly to the heart of many of the issues raised in the Corbett Report podcast in general. Let's think about some of the issues that are raised by the SPP process. For example, in a previous episode of the Corbett Report on the SPP, we cited from the article Canada Raising Limits on Pesticide Residues by the CanWest News Service from May 8, 2007, which revealed that the SPP process was standardizing pesticide levels across international borders, meaning that Canada would be raising its allowable use of pesticide limits to meet that of the United States. Of course, this means a lowering of standards for food quality, but that's all in the name of corporate profit. And recently in the Real News section of the Corbett Report, we featured the report from Infowars.com, U.S. and Canada pen bilateral military plan under NAU auspices, which details how NORTHCOM will take control of North America in the event of any emergency either in Canada or the U.S., meaning that the U.S. military will be deployed in Canada or the Canadian military deployed in the U.S., depending on where the emergency takes place. We also have this report from the Times Colonist from February 6, 2008. New licenses set stage for national ID cards, privacy watchdog warns. This article reads in part, quote, Canada's privacy watchdog voiced significant concerns yesterday that enhanced driver's licenses, like those being used in BC, lay the groundwork for a national identity card. Privacy Commissioner Jennifer Stoddart in Victoria this week with her provincial counterparts for a privacy and security conference said the enhanced licenses, which are being issued as a cheaper, more convenient alternative to a Canadian passport, closely resemble the real ID program in the United States. Stardart characterized that program as a way of introducing an American identity card. End quote. What all of these far-flung and seemingly very disparate ideas point to is that we are going under a form of regional government without any type of legislative oversight of what's happening. And this is all being directed at the behest of industry. That's something that can be gleaned from the Security and Prosperity Partnership Ministerial Meeting Minutes 
from the meeting held in Ottawa on February 23, 2007, which was obtained by the Corbett Report exclusively on July 9, 2007. And in the Corbett Report article, A Peek Behind Closed Doors, I attempted to make clear how this process was being governed by the business interests behind the scenes. So let me read from a portion of that article. Quote, The most startling passage of the document concerns the North American Competitiveness Council, NACC, which the minutes themselves note was a body created by leaders in 2006 to give the private sector a formal role in providing advice on how to enhance competitiveness in North America. The idea that business interests are really in control of the process is suggested in the following passage. Exchanges following a formal presentation of the NACC's report uncovered frustration relating to the private sector's seeming inability to influence the pace of regulatory change from the bottom up. The subtext was clear. In the absence of ministerial endorsement, bureaucracies are unlikely to act on the more challenging recommendations. The complex and far-reaching nature of the recommendations suggests that governments will need ample time to review and consult internally and trilaterally, but it seems clear that the NACC will be looking for an early commitment to moving forward quickly. This shockingly candid passage makes it clear that the business interests are actually in charge of the process, giving the politicians marching orders and demanding that these orders are followed and followed quickly. Perhaps this is not surprising when one discovers that the SPP in fact did not start life as a governmental dialogue at all, but rather as an initiative launched by the Canadian Council of Chief Executives in January 2003. According to the Council's own documents, Council members comprise the CEOs of 150 leading Canadian businesses, which administer in excess of $2.1 trillion Canadian dollars in assets, have annual revenues of more than $500 billion, and, it seems, have a number of ranking governmental officials from all three North American nations in their back pocket. End quote. As I hope that passage makes clear, the North American Competitiveness Council is one of the agencies pulling the strings of the SPP from behind the scenes and attempting to use this SPP dialogue, as it's referred to, in order to stop it being bound from the usual restrictions placed on treaties among nations in order to obscure the end run that they're playing around national sovereignty. Of course, the SPP isn't the only move towards regional government or eventually global governance. Another clear example is the Lisbon Treaty, which is, of course, just the EU constitution repackaged because, of course, the globalists made the mistake of putting the EU constitution to a referendum, and, of course, the people rejected it. So they repackaged it as the Lisbon Treaty, which is a constitution in all but name, and this time they're not making the mistake of giving it too many referendums. Indeed, although the House of Parliament in the UK promised to put the treaty to a referendum, they have recently decided that that is not the case, and they will not be asking the British electorate their opinion about the Lisbon Treaty. They will simply be ratifying it. Recently, We Are Change UK had a protest about this backstabbing by the Gordon Brown administration, and that made even BBC News. I hope to have We Are Change UK on the program for an interview in the near future, so please keep an eye out for that. Other bodies that are moving to create a globalized system, which only benefits the, those at the very top of the pyramid, include, of course, the United Nations. 
That can be garnered from numerous different articles, but let's take a look at this one from worldnetdaily.com. U.S. under U.N. law in health emergency. Bush's SPP power grab sets stage for military to manage flu threats. Quote, the Security and Prosperity Partnership of North America Summit in Canada released a plan that establishes UN law, along with regulations by the World Trade Organization and World Health Organization, as supreme over U.S. law during a pandemic, and sets the stage for militarizing the management of continental health emergencies. The North American Plan for Avian and Pandemic Influenza was finalized at the SPP Summit last week in Montebello, Quebec. At the same time, the U.S. Northern Command, or NORTHCOM, has created a web page dedicated to avian flu and has been running exercises in preparation for the possible use of U.S. military forces in a continental domestic emergency involving avian flu or pandemic influenza. End quote. This even relates to the global warming hysteria, which is currently being hyped in much of the world, and that can be garnered from a very recent article from BBC News, 15th of March, 2008. Blair wants climate revolution. Former Prime Minister Tony Blair has called for a global environmental revolution to tackle climate change. Quote, Mr. Blair is on a visit to Japan to discuss global greenhouse gas targets. In a speech to a meeting of G8 ministers building on the 2005 Glen Eagles Summit, he stressed the need for a global deal. He suggested it should be led by the UN, and that failure to act on climate change would be deeply and unforgivably irresponsible. Yes, well, of course, we should trust that unindicted war criminal, Tony Blair, and uh, we shouldn't trust uh, articles with headlines like UN complicit in forced sterilizations from December 23, 2002, or fraud and abuse levels stun UN from January 11, 2008. We should just trust that the UN is a wonderful organization that's going to be for the benefit of humanity, despite the fact that, of course, their uni Universal Declaration of Human Rights was written by that eugenicist H.G. Wells, who was fostering the idea of the scientific dictatorship, as we all know from episode 34 of the Corbett Report, and gave control of UNESCO to the eugenicist Julian Huxley, who wrote about his eugenics ideals in the very founding documents of UNESCO, which again you can get from episode 34 of the Corbett Report. No, we should trust Tony Blair and that UN will be able to take on the climate change challenge that's facing the world and which will require the sacrifice of so many of us. Of course, I think even the financial oligarchs at the top of this system realize that such blatant propaganda as the global warming hysteria is starting to wear off and people are not going to fall under global government so easily just because the media promotes it as the only answer to things like avian flu or global warming. So they're going to go for Plan B. What is Plan B? Well, perhaps that can be garnered from this article. Is Cheney betting on economic collapse? This comes from July 5th, 2006 from Counterpunch and reads in part, quote, Wouldn't you like to know where Dick Cheney puts his money? Then you'd know whether his deficits don't matter claim is just baloney or not. Well, as it turns out, Kiplinger magazine ran an article based on Cheney's financial disclosure statement and, sure enough, found out that the VP is lying to the American people for the umpteenth time. Deficits do matter, and Cheney has invested his money accordingly. 
The article is called Cheney's Betting on Bad News and provides an account of where Cheney has socked away more than $25 million. While the figures may be estimates, the investments are not. According to Tom Blackburn of the Palm Beach Post, Cheney has invested heavily in a fund that specializes in short-term municipal bonds, a tax-exempt money market fund, and an inflation-protected securities fund. The first two hold up if interest rates rise with inflation. The third is protected against inflation. Cheney has dumped another estimated 10 to $25 million in a European bond fund, which tells us that he is counting on a steadily weakening dollar. So, while working-class Americans are losing ground to inflation and rising energy costs, Darth Cheney will be enhancing his wealth in old Europe. As Blackburn sagely notes, not all bad news is bad for everybody. End quote. Yes, that's right, Cheney has been quietly divesting of U.S. dollars for the last two years, and he's not the only one. Statements have been made from various fund managers about getting out of the U.S. dollar, and of course we all know Greenspan has been on something of a tour recently, bad-mouthing the dollar in foreign countries, while insisting at home that the economy is fundamentally sound and that he had nothing to do with the creation of the subprime mortgage housing bubble, which has just popped, as we all know, and created the credit crisis that we're now facing. Of course, the U.S. dollar is now plummeting like a stone, and we are about to find out what it's like to live in a country that's going into the IMF riot phase of consolidation. Make no doubt about it, this is all related. This is related to the people in the international financial oligarchy that are pulling the strings, and this is part of the plan to make people accept the regional governments, which are going to be pushed as the ultimate stage of globalization. In order to grease the skids of commerce so that the entire economy doesn't collapse, we're going to be pushed into regional economies in which regional monetary systems take hold. And as we all know, without control of a country's fiscal policy, the country's government has no real sovereignty. All of these issues are related. The SPP, regional government, climate change, the collapsing dollar, the police state, all of the issues that the Corbett Report looks at on an ongoing basis are involved and implicated in this grand strategy for the creation of global government which answers to no one and benefits no person but only corporations. This is an important point and one that needs to be articulated carefully, so I will leave that again to Alex Jones, this time from the March 14, 2008 edition of the Alex Jones Radio Show. Let's listen to Alex Jones' analysis of how all these issues tie together. The bankers got full control of us. They bankrupted us. They got us all in debt. The state's in debt. They set up a huge government. They're only now trying to double it again. Bush more than doubled it just to run every facet of our lives because it was all fiat. They were issuing it out of nothing, but we have to pay the bill. They get to buy the world with it. They get the assets. We're left holding the bag. They did everything they could from tax incentives to move offshore. That's globalism. To deindustrialize the West, to bring the U.S. down, to destroy the middle class so that they can micromanage and control our daily lives so we don't have money to defend ourselves, money to raise our own children, money to private school or homeschool. This is all in government documents from a hundred years ago. They put it into place. They've done it. 
This is feudalism. This is serfdom. This is a long-term strategic plan now coming to a head. And what are they saying the answer to the fiscal crisis is? More credit, more credit cards, more mortgages, more money, but that devalues the currency. Again, the globalists flooded the globe with dollars. They bought up dams, power plants, water plants, gold mines, nickel mines, cadmium mines, bauxite mines, uh, timber, forest, farms, big agra companies, finance, armaments companies, media companies. They bought up everything. And now they're going to implode that dollar and sit back with the assets. And they'll bring down a few hundred banks in front of you and even send a few CEOs to jail. And they'll send a few bank chairmen and a few of these different brokerage firms that were selling all these mortgage-backed securities. And they'll, you know, they'll send a few hundred to jail for you, and the big boys will sit back. And the next phase, instead of the type of government make work that uh, we saw with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, it's going to be tattletale squads and checkpoints. and I mean, that's what the government says it's going to be. Just people in black uniforms milling around at food trucks, groveling to be part of the new power structure. America won't be about having a new patent or being a good computer engineer or being a good football coach or a, or a good school teacher or being an inventor. Uh, or being a good car salesman. It's going to be about who you know, how many black uniforms you got in the family. It's all going to be the new feudal system of just groveling and a select elites and 1% owning everything and a giant slave underclass begging and pleading and everyone, like they do in third world countries, worshiping police and badges and being afraid of them and running. Oh, you haven't been to a third world country? Well, you're about to be in one, so just enjoy it. We are indeed heading into some dark times, as Alex Jones indicated in that clip. But the key is understanding who the enemy is in this fight and what they want to achieve. This is indeed the underlying precept of the info war in general. We are being indoctrinated with beliefs about the wonderful nature of global government. We are being indoctrinated with beliefs about global warming and how it can be combated. We're being indoctrinated with beliefs about avian flu and what must be done in order to protect us from it. We're being indoctrinated with beliefs about what's happening to the economy and what the real solutions are. And as listeners to the Corbett Report know, the beliefs that we're being indoctrinated with through the corporate-controlled media, unsurprisingly, tend to benefit the corporations. This is a point so basic that it shouldn't even need to be made. But I'm sure that we've all encountered people who understand the nature of corporate control over the media, over our governments, over our daily lives, over the political parties that supposedly represent us in the government. But these same people can't put two and two together to understand that corporate control is being wielded as a weapon in an info war in order to secure the end of a happy ending under a global government for the corporations in which we have no right to protest. Our slowly eroding rights and freedoms in the name of free trade and corporate globalization are readily apparent to most people at this stage of the game. One way of waking someone up to what's really going on would be to show them the news footage of the Quebec provincial police who were caught in Montebello staging attacks against the police in order to provoke police violence against the peaceful protesters. 
This was a point that was made explicitly in the mainstream controlled media because the brainwashed anchors couldn't even understand why the police would dress up as protesters and then attack the police. They didn't understand that this was the exact point to provoke the reaction in order to justify suppressing peaceful protesters. That was a perfect example of even the controlled corporate media letting the secret of false flag terrorism out, staging an attack, blaming it on someone else, in order to get people behind the response, which in this case would be the suppression of free speech. But the same principle holds even in an event like 9-11. Why would the government attack itself? Well, obviously because it gives the government the right to respond in whatever way it chooses against the enemy which it has put up as being the perpetrators of the attacks. The logic is so simple that, in fact, most children would easily understand it. And yet, for some reason, the brainwashed, conditioned adults have a hard time understanding what's going on. Again, as always, I suggest you do some of your own research into the approach of global government and what it really means. I hope in light of some of the recent episodes on the Corbett Report, including the scientific dictatorship, the idea of a global government administered by a global dictator is a chilling one, and one that we should at all costs attempt to stop. That's it for this week's episode of the Corbett Report, and I'd like to let my listeners know that the Corbett Report podcast will be going on a short hiatus for the next few weeks. Until mid-April, there will be no new Corbett Report podcast episodes, and the website will be updated infrequently, if at all. I ask for your continued support during this hiatus, and don't worry, the Corbett Report will come back stronger than ever, ready to take on new issues in mid-April. Thank you for all of your support so far. Thank you for all of the feedback and response that you've given to the website through our contact form on CorbettReport.com so far. And I'm working on some info operations to expand what we're doing at the Corbett Report and hopefully put us further behind enemy lines in the info war. Until next time, thank you for your support, and join me again next month for the continuation of the Corbett Report podcast. Grandpa, tell me the story I really want to know What was it like before the United Nations of America long ago? Did countries really fight countries? What was diplomacy? Privacy fences, secret ballots, and one-way TV How George, our founding father, boldly started it all by chasing off Saddam Hussein Then ending terror for us all How the UN and World Court were abolished And the World Peace Army made Oh, tell me what was it like in the USA What was it like in the USA What was it like in the USA can't even imagine living free that way. What was it like in the USA? Could you really start in Minnesota and drive to the Florida Keys without a single security checkpoint 
taking any road you pleased. Oh, tell me of the French underground after our tanks rolled into Paris and the internet became one state-run ISP. What was it like in the USA? What was it like in the USA? I can't even imagine living free that way. What was it like in the USA? Tell me why you're angry now that we don't have any crime. The homeland police just do their job when they watch us all the time. There's no more mafia, no dirty books. They hold the world in the grip of peace. Grandpa, tell me what it meant to speak your peace. What was it like in the USA? And back at the IMF and World Bank spring meeting today, World Bank Chief Jim Wolfenson is still musing about world domination. Uh, we've done a lot of things well, we've made a lot of mistakes, but no more or no less than I think any other highly intelligent, well-meaning group of people in the most difficult area. And in some cases I really wish I was president of a world government, so then I could make sure everything worked, uh, knowing, as you all do, of my great skill as an administrator.